the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And lo, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of Jehovah, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he say thus, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. Well, we've been reading through the history of David, the king of Israel. David, the shepherd that stood up against the giant Goliath. David, in his flight from Saul and all those persecutions and all those trials and tribulations, David, finally being anointed king of both Judah and Israel. David, the adulterer. David, the murderer. David, the grossly wicked man. And now we've been looking more closely at David's flight from his very own son, even his favorite son, Absalom, fleeing. Fleeing with his head covered and his feet bare. Fleeing, weeping, Fleeing humbly. David has been humbled by God through the chastening that began with the death of the child that he shared with Bathsheba, the child of his adultery. David has been humbled. I was provoked this morning with some of the discussion about the church and how desperately the church needs revival. How desperately the church needs to be turned around. How desperately the church needs to be humbled as David was humbled. And this verse really stood out to me. And all the country wept with a loud voice. All the people wept with a loud voice. <clears throat> How much weeping is there in this land? It probably would be a fair reference to the entire world, but I don't know about that. So I speak of this country, this land. How much weeping is there over the terrible state of the church of Jesus Christ, the visible church of God. How much weeping is there? I'm reminded of that passage in Ezekiel about the man making a mark on the foreheads of those. And you remember who it was that received that mark upon their forehead representing, as I understand, the remnant or the people of God, those that received the mark on their forehead were those that sighed and cried for all the abominations done. 
I ask again, how much sighing and crying do we do? Here we have an example set before us that I hadn't even anticipated. But here we have an example of David in his flight. And we don't know how many people, but more than 600 at any rate, because Ittai, the Gittite, had 600 with him. Plus, they had children, their, their little ones, it says. And all these people weeping along with the king with a loud voice as they passed over. But then Zadok came and all the Levites with him bearing the Ark of the Covenant were told. God in his infinite faithfulness, his incredible covenant mercy continues to provide this wicked sinner even in his chastening continues to provide him encouragements and continues to provide him substance for his faith continues to remind him of his covenant with him continues to remind him that he is his God and that David is his <coughs> son who is faithful like our God. Surely there is none. God continues to bring instruments of comfort to his repentant servant, David. He continues to comfort him even as he chastises him for the evil that he had done, bringing Shame upon the name of his God. But he continues. David was unfaithful, but God is always faithful to his word and to his people. And we find here in this little passage that David was able to so trust his friends in the ministry that he could confide to them his plans without concern that they would betray his confidence. Without concern that they would betray, he sent, he sent Zadok and Abiathar back. And he said, go. He said, I'm gonna be by the fords of the river at this particular place. He's letting Zadok know where he's gonna be so that he can send word back to him so that, that his son and Abiathar's son will know where to find him to bring word to him. But he trusts Zadok, and he trusts Abiathar. He tells him where he's going to be. What kind of friends these are. What lovely friends. It would be well if, if we could have that kind of confidence in friends, would it not? If we could be able to embrace their friendship in that way, knowing that they would not betray us. He knew that they wouldn't. Zadok and Abiathar both were instruments of David's God to bring both comfort and confidence to him. One writer said, oh, that God's servants today so conducted themselves that those in trouble would not hesitate to confide in them and seek their counsel. 
It was sad reflecting again this morning on the condition of the church, how it's so fractured and how fragmented and how so many hands and arms and legs and eyes are moving around from body to body. Difficult to have any confidence in those hands and arms and legs and eyes when they're moving all over the place. But David was able by the grace of God to have confidence in these friends that God himself sent. And they brought, we're told, they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them. They brought the Levites with them, bearing the Ark of the Covenant. They meant well by doing so. It's understandable, is it not, that they would anticipate, they would expect that King David would want very much for the Ark to be with him. We can remember, can we not, how desperate he was to bring the ark to Jerusalem, how frustrated he was when, when the first attempt failed, the first attempt that he made to bring the ark to Jerusalem. You remember the account, how that they got it from the house of Obed-Edom and how that they put it on a cart and that they were bringing it to the holy city. They were bringing it into Jerusalem. The oxen stumbled and the cart was jostled and Uzzah put forth his hand to stable the ark so that it wouldn't fall off. And God smote him dead right on the spot. And David was displeased. He was displeased with God. Let's be honest about it. He was displeased with what God had done. But he was frustrated also. He said, how then shall I bring the ark up? He was so frustrated in that account. But then a few months later, he was encouraged to make the attempt again, only this time he was going to do it right. He was going to do it according to the commandment of God. He wasn't going to imitate those Philistines that previously had put the ark on a cart. He wasn't going to imitate the world. How much of that is bringing the church down? But he was going to do what God had commanded, and he had the Levites to carry it. And he brought it back in to the city. And what was he doing then? Was he anxious? Was he concerned? Was he worried? Was he fearful? Hardly. He was leaping and dancing before God as they brought the ark into the city, leaping and dancing before Jehovah. Surely the king, Zadok and Abiathar were likely thinking, surely the king, after all that, and we saw how joyous he was bringing in the ark finally. Surely he would want the ark with him and those that had followed with him. We can easily imagine these friends, these priests, to be thinking just those thoughts. And so they meant well bringing the ark to David as he fled from the city. 
But he said, carry it back. We don't read of him saying, I don't want it here. Shame on you for bringing it or any such thing. But he says, carry it back into the city. What would be the reason, or at least the, one of the great reasons, one of the strong motives for David to say, carry the ark back into the city? I'm sure there may have been some subsidiary thoughts in his mind. But it is very likely, I believe, that David called to mind that account of Israel fighting the Philistines, that account that we see in, in 1 Samuel. Perhaps you remember that account. You remember the sons of old Eli, those wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, those wicked sons of Eli. We were talking about generational religion or generational Christianity is what was being referred to in Sunday school. Here's this Eli, old Eli, a priest. And look what became of his sons. How wicked they were. That God determined to destroy them. And we read in 1 Samuel 4 how that Israel went out to battle the Philistines. The details are somewhat unimportant. The main detail is that they were beaten, they were smitten. Before the Philistines, they slew about 4,000 men. So what was their response to this? When they got back to the camp after that terrible defeat, when the people were coming to the camp, were told the elders, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath Jehovah smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of Jehovah out of Shiloh unto us, that it may come among us and save us out of the hand of our enemies. Let's bring the ark. It'll save us. The ark will save us. Isn't that what it's for? Let's go bring it. Go to Shiloh and fetch it. So they sent to Shiloh and Phinehas and Hophni were the priests there in Shiloh that were directed to bring it. So we read how that, how that went. We could ask, how did that work for you? It didn't work very well. It didn't work very well. But initially, initially it seemed to be working. We read how the Philistines were afraid when they heard all the shouting. And they said that, the, that God has come into the camp. But had he? They brought the ark. And the Philistines were anxious. They were afraid, we're told. Woe unto us, they said. They believed the same way that the Israelites believed. Bring the ark in and, and, and it will save us. But they said, quit you like men. Fight for your lives. And they did fight. And Israel was smitten again. And this time 30,000 footmen were slain. 
And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain, even according to the prophecy that God had spoken through Samuel. And then a report came back to Israel and to Eli. Eli heard that the ark of God was taken, and he fell back off of the stool he was sitting on. He was a heavy man, we're told. He fell back, and when he fell back, his neck was broken. But how did the ark work out for them? Surely David had that, was aware of that history. Surely he had that in his mind when he said, carry the ark back. Carry it back. Hophni and Phinehas, with all Israel, imagined that if the ark of God were brought into the battle, they would be victorious for certain. But it didn't work out that way. The ark was with them, but God was not. Treating the ark of God as though it were a good luck charm or a fetish was not pleasing to God. What is a fetish? The dictionary tells us that among primitive peoples, any inanimate object worshipped either for its inherent magical power. They expected magical power from the ark. Or because it is conceived as the residence of a god or spirit. They assumed that God would be with them. Even though he hadn't commanded them to bring the ark. Any object of unreasoning or ignorant devotion. That's what a fetish is. That's what a good luck charm is. You remember Paul addressing those men of Athens, I believe it is, in in, uh, Acts 17. Ye men of Athens, he says, I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this ascription to an unknown God. What therefore ye worship in ignorance, this I set before you. I perceive that you are very religious, he said. In the margin, it says, I believe that you are somewhat superstitious. Somewhat superstitious. That's what Israel was being, superstitious. Bring the ark. That'll work for us. Superstition is an irrational fear of or reverence for the unknown. You worship an unknown God. Superstitious. For the unknown, the mysterious or supernatural. That's what superstition is. Any belief in the power of omens, signs, charms, and so on and so on. The ark was such a fetish to these Israelites. And God was displeased. We could say, as one writer said, that these people, Israel was guilty of archaeology. They were seeking to make a god of the ark. They were treating the ark as an object of worship or as a talisman or as a a good luck charm, a fetish, and so on. 
Can we be guilty of such? Are we guilty of any such? Many professing Christians have made or are making an idol of their faith, are they not? They're trusting in their faith. Is that not idolizing it? They're trusting in their faith. You know the account. You've heard it many, many times. I don't know if it's a, an urban legend or what, but someone putting a stake uh, uh, in the ground uh, in their backyard behind the garage where they first asked Jesus to come into their heart, as they say. And if they have any trials, if they have any doubts, if their assurance is tested, well, just go around behind the garage and look at that stake that you put in the ground. That, that's making an idol of their faith, their faith. They think their faith has saved them. We can even idolize our repentance, can we not? As important as faith, as important as repentance is, nonetheless, we can, we can make an idol of it, can we not? We can be trusting in our repentance. Oh, I repented of that sin. I confess that saying, I'm, that sin, I'm good to go. And make an idol of it thinking that's what saved us was because we repented. I don't believe that anyone has ever been saved without repentance. And of course, they haven't been saved without faith. But both are the gifts of God. And he didn't give them to us in order that we depend upon them rather than himself to be saved. Men are really good at making an idol out of virtually anything, whatever. Are we not? Good at that. We can idolize our repentance. We can idolize our theology. Oh, I'm reformed. We can idolize our understanding. Oh, I've grasped so much. I, 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 I don't lie. We can do the same thing with prayer. I must be all right. I pray an hour every morning. I pray an hour every midday. I pray an hour every evening. Trusting in such things that we do. Sounds a little pharisaical, doesn't it? These things are all part and parcel of our walk before God. But when, but when, when we view prayer with a wrong motive, when we view any of these things, thinking that it's something that we accomplished, we're setting aside the grace of God and we're looking at our works. These things become good luck charms, as it were, fetishes. And in doing so, are we not making of our God a utilitarian God? Simply praying to God when we need something. If we do that, we go from, Thou art worthy, O God. We go from that to, Thou art useful, O God. Thou art useful. So I think that we can be guilty of making a God of our theology or any of these things that I've mentioned. 
We're not saved by our theology. I don't care how good it is, we're not saved by our theology. We're not even saved by our faith. Through our faith, but not by our faith. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb of God. We are saved by Jesus Christ. We are not going to be saved because we've become reformed. We're going to be saved because we're loved. Loved by God from before the foundation of the world. Trying to be fair to Israel in in sending for the ark, they may well have been reflecting on how that they had, in their history, had marched around Jericho six times and then a seventh with the ark of God. And making great noise, blowing trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down. To try to be fair to them, perhaps they were reflecting on that. But they needed to be reminded of a couple of things. They needed to be reminded that this was done according to the word of God, according to his direction as to how to take Jericho. And they needed to be reminded that it was God who brought the walls down. It wasn't the ark. It was God who brought the walls down. Perhaps you're aware of Joshua's response after Israel had been sadly defeated by this little city of Ai after they had taken this big city of Jericho. And then they said about Ai, the, the, the... those that had reconnoitered came back and said, oh, it's just a little one and they're not so tough. We can just send a few men. And so they listened to their own thoughts. They didn't, they didn't inquire of God. And so they sent a few thousand men and those men were caused to flee. They were beaten, embarrassed, shamed by this little city of Ai. What was, what was Joshua's response to that? Well, I'll tell you what his response wasn't. He didn't say, go get the ark. It worked at Jericho. Go get the ark. We'll go with the ark and and march around that city seven times. He didn't say that. Look at what his reaction was in Joshua 7. In Joshua chapter 7. You You don't need to turn there, but Joshua 7 is where we find it. Joshua chapter 7 this terrible defeat in how humble Joshua was by this defeat. We read in verse 6 of Joshua 7, And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of Jehovah. There it was until the evening. But he didn't say, let's take the ark. He, He and the elders of Israel And they put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord Jehovah. That's the proper response. Alas, O Lord Jehovah. Show us our sin. Show us what we did wrong. Show us why you allowed this little city to defeat us. That's the proper, the proper behavior 
Again, he didn't say, bring the ark or anything of the sort. You remember going back to that account of that terrible defeat, that terrible defeat in Eli's death, and that we're also told that the wife of Phinehas was shocked, and the writers seem to all agree that it was the shock that brought about her labor. She went into labor and she bore a son, a grandson to Eli, and then she died, not before she named that son Ichabod. The glory has departed. And frankly, I agree with those writers that said the glory had already departed before that battle. The glory had departed. That's what the problem was. The wickedness of these priests and the wickedness of Israel in following them. The wickedness of Eli in not renouncing the evils that his sons were doing. The glory had already departed. That's what the problem was. And we're told in Psalm 78, 60, that God forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. That tabernacle where they went and got the ark and took it into that battle. God forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. The glory of the Lord had departed. It's, it's like the, the removal of a candlestick that's threatened by Christ in those seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Repent and do your first works or else I'll remove your candlestick. The glory of the Lord will depart. And he told them what the problem was, that, that it had already begun, even as it had already begun with Israel. He said, you've left your first love. Repent and do your first works. Repent. Or else I'll remove the candlestick. Remove the candlestick. The glory will be removed. It will be Ichabod stamped upon your door. When we seek out methods that are outside of God's appointment, our own will, out of our own brains, we have left our first love. Oh, how love I thy law. Oh, how love I thy word, David echoed and echoed. And when we seek our own will, we've already left our first love. We've left off seeking God's will. Our God is a jealous God. He's not going to tolerate that. He will not share his glory with any especially with any sort of contrivance of men, he will not have us trusting in anything but himself, not even the ark. He will not have us trusting in our faith, a gift that he gave us, or our repentance, and so on, on and on. The people of God were reminded, even in Jeremiah 7.12, the people were reminded about this. And good would it be for us to be reminded also. In 7.12. Segwaying off of that psalm. That God forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. 
in 712 of Jeremiah, but go ye now unto my place which was which was in Shiloh, where I caused my name to dwell at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. See what I did to it. Why is the church in such disarray? Why is the church not prospering? Why is the church not growing? We need to ask ourselves seriously these questions. It was really intriguing to me that our brother read from Jeremiah and he read a, a passage from that 18th chapter in the 17th verse that is applicable here. This is speaking, of course, through Jeremiah to Jeremiah about what's going to become of Judah because of their idolatry, because of their spiritual adultery. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. Listen to this. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. And you know elsewhere that God told Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. I will show them my back and not my face. Ichabod, the glory has departed. Is this not sadly likely to be the case with the church in this land? See what I did to Shiloh. Constant reminders are needed by each, each and every one of us. Needed for each and every one of us. Even as Paul spoke to the Corinthians, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed. We need to have that ringing in our ears. You think you're standing individually? You think you're standing corporately? You think you're standing? Take heed. Our confidence must be in God alone. Our confidence must be in God's covenant promises alone. Our confidence must be in his son, Jesus Christ alone. No confidence in rabbit's feet or any of those such things. Not even in the, in the ark. Especially not in any crosses around your neck or crosses on your walls or crosses on doors or crosses on steeples. But in the one who was hanged upon a cross. In him alone. David said, carry back the ark. He would have none of it. You remember the account in 2 Kings about Hezekiah. Taking down and destroying all the idols. Having a real reform in Judah, taking down and destroying all these idols that the people were worshiping them and doing great destruction to the high places as they were called. What else did he destroy in, as recorded in 2 Kings 18? The serpent of brass, the serpent of bronze, the brazen serpent that God himself directed Moses to manufacture in Numbers but what became of it? The people began to worship it. They began to make an idol out of it. A good luck charm, perhaps. A talisman, a fetish. 
They were thinking more of it than God. And they thought of God, carry it back. We're told in that passage that Hezekiah trusted in Jehovah, the God of Israel. He wasn't trusting in that image, that, that bronze serpent on a pole. He was trusting in God. And David's trust was in his God. He could say with Job, Jehovah gave and Jehovah hath taken away. Blessed be the name of Jehovah. <clears throat> and again with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. David had been humbled and brought to repentance and cried out unto God and God forgave him his sin, but he's still experiencing God's chastening hand because he is a son and not a bastard. The ark was made at God's appointment, but he would not have it to displace him for our trust. The elements employed in our sacraments. Many churches have, have made them something that they are not. God commanded these things in his word. He commanded the bread and the wine. And he commanded the water for baptism. And he even directs us to use oil. In the New Testament to use oil of anointing. To pray when we pray, when the elders pray over someone that's ill. But nowhere has he ordained or commanded that baptismal water be treated as a holy water. With magical powers. Nowhere, nowhere has he ordained any such thing for bread and wine and water and oil to be venerated as something they are not. He has not commanded us to hold up the, the, the bread, the wafers on a pole, the host as one church refers to it, that the people worship the host. We're to worship God through the one who himself is the bread of life, not some bread on a pole. These things are all fetishes. David sent the ark back with Zadok and Abiathar in order that he would not even give the impression or the appearance that he trusted in that symbol rather than trusting in God himself. Perhaps he will bring me back again, David said. You see that faith. God hadn't taken his faith away. But he wasn't trusting in it, but he still had it. He said, perhaps he will bring me back again. He trusted God's promises, his covenant promises. If I shall find favor in the eyes of Jehovah, he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. Both it and his dwelling place. They seem to be two different things. Both it, I believe the ark, his dwelling place. In the Holy of Holies. Perhaps he will show me both it and his dwelling place. David's complete trust in a covenant-keeping, faithful God. And he echoes, does he not echo the, the submission of a greater David? 
My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. It, the ark, and God's habitation are not identical. One is the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts enthroned on the cherubim, as rendered in a New Jerusalem Publication Society Bible. The other is God himself. David doesn't confound those two. God dwells in the holy of holies. God dwells in and with his people, saying, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. He had humbled David. He had brought him to contrition. And his word says that he dwells in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Where does God dwell? Where does the New Testament tell us that God dwells? Know ye not that ye are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Christ dwells in you by his Spirit. You are his habitation. He dwells in you. And David seems to be saying, some render Ezekiel eleven sixteen 16, that speaks of a sanctuary, but in the, in the King James and the New King James, it's rendered a little sanctuary. It seems one writer at least said that, that, that God, that David believed that God would be unto him a little sanctuary, even in his flight, that God would be with him, God would be unto him a little sanctuary in the wilderness. Because God promised that he would never leave him nor forsake him. He promised that even in his trials and tribulations that he would undertake for him and that he would keep him. And that all this chastening, as difficult and, and, and as tear-rending as it was, he was receiving because God loved him. An especially wonderful hymn from William Cooper's pen. God moves in a mysterious way. These things often seem mysterious to us. Hopefully David was being brought to understand and I think he did understand a lot of it. And hopefully when we're in the same situation as David, the Lord will be pleased if we pray and if we search the scriptures to tell us why these things are coming upon us. But God indeed moves in a mysterious way, but Cooper goes on with one more line saying, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him, trust him for his grace. That's what David was doing, trusting him for his grace. Didn't have anything to do with what David deserved. If David got what he deserved, he'd been dead. But trust God for his grace. And then Cooper goes on, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I believe that David, through his tears, was seeing that smiling face in the chastising hand. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, who is a God like unto our God, Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. We thank thee 
For thy love, we thank thee for its demonstration in giving thine only Son to redeem thy people, to make them willing to come unto thee in the day of thy power. O Lord our God, may we ever be thankful as thou art ever faithful. We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, for the benediction? A few verses from the 37th Psalm. Trust in Jehovah and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight thyself also in Jehovah, and he will give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto Jehovah. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Amen.